the closing sentence of chapter 11 sets in motion the events of the 12th chapter. Verse 27 of the 11th chapter ends with these words, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And yet, God's displeasure with David must be seen in the context of God's mercy toward David. We've made mention several times in recent weeks about this Hebrew word, hesed, the loving kindness, the mercy of God. And the displeasure of God towards David is a displeasure that finds its expression in the context of God's kindness towards David. You will not properly understand chapter 12 unless you grasp this. God is abundant in loving kindness towards his children. He is merciful towards those who are in covenant relationship with him. David has shown loving kindness to others as one who is under the loving kindness of the Lord. You see, I want to show you this. Please turn across to the Psalm 89. The Psalm 89. Because as Ethan the Ezraite would record the ways of God, he makes mention in verse 1 of the mercies of the Lord. God's covenantal faithfulness. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known thy faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Thy faithfulness shalt thou establish in the very heavens. And there you see in that verse 2, the bringing together of those two thoughts in the character of God, mercy and truth, mercy and faithfulness. These things are often combined in the Old Testament Scriptures. Reminding us again that God's favor towards sinners is a covenantal faithfulness. He binds himself by oath to do good and show kindness unto his children. But as Ethan considers that in this psalm, the verse number 3 shows us that that mercy and that faithfulness is expressed in a particular covenant. Verse 3, I have made my covenant, or sorry, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant. Thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. Selah. We've read the chapter in 2 Samuel. We know this comes to pass when David is indeed blessed of God, as God promises to build him a house. But as you think about David's relationship with the Lord under God's mercy and under God's faithfulness, you see in the verse 28 of the Psalm 89 that this mercy is David's forevermore. Verse 28 says, My mercy will I keep for him forevermore, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. That covenant and God's commitment to that covenant has not been broken by David's sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. Chapter 11 and chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, they sit in the context of God's determination to be faithful in his loving kindness towards David. Sometimes we as God's people find that difficult to accept. There's something in all of us that demands something different here. Not that David be forgiven, 
but that he'd find himself cast down into deepest eternity. But it is God's mercy. You see, now turn back to Psalm 51, and you will see that as David contemplates his sin, he claims the mercy of God. We'll come back to this uh, later on this evening. The Psalm 51, verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. You see, you've got to accept and appreciate that 2 Samuel 12 sits in the context, yes, of God's displeasure with his wayward saints, but also in the context of God's commitment to show loving kindness to David, a loving kindness that will never, ever fail. So turning back to 2 Samuel 12, we should understand that as we read these events, we are reading we're reading a story of God's grace in the life of David. Yes, there are some very, very searching words of chastisement, consequence of sin, but the chapter beats with the grace of God. And so we'll see tonight God's grace in sending David a faithful prophet, in moving David to repentance. And finally, giving David a promise. Now note, please, especially tonight, we are thinking of God's grace to the saint who falls into sin. Oh, there's parallel application, yes, to the sinner. But very particularly, we're seeing this as a parallel of 1 John 1, that if we confess our sins as those who walk in the light, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So see, first of all, God's grace. God's loving kindness to David in his sin. First of all, in sending David a faithful prophet. Over in chapter 12, verse 1, we see the words, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. And you can take time, some other time, go home and go back to chapter 11 and see how often people are sent hither and thither in chapter 11. Man's at work in chapter 11. David particularly is working all of his sin, sending here, there, and everywhere to commit his own evil deeds. And so you get the verse number 1 of chapter 12, and the Lord sent. It's a deliberate contrast. Man's actions in chapter 11, God now coming in power and glory in chapter 12. And God's grace is seen in sending Nathan a gift unto David. Nathan's name means that. It has as its core idea the word gift, and so some suggest it means giver. Others suggest his name means actually a gift from God. Now, I'm going to enter some speculation here, but I do think that David understands that Nathan comes as a gift to him from the Lord. Nathan, I believe, is honored by David as David names a future son Nathan. One of his sons, leader sons, are called Nathan. And we know that from the genealogy of Christ in Luke chapter 3. Methaha had a son, the son of Nathan, which was the son of David. And you turn back, or close to it, turn back to 2 Samuel 5. And there is a record there, the sons that were born to David in Jerusalem. Shammuah, Shobah, and Nathan, and Solomon. And so the commentators suggest that these four sons mentioned here actually were born to David of Bathsheba. 
So it may well be, again, there's some speculation here, but it may well be that David acknowledged the grace of God in sending Nathan to him as a faithful messenger of God. Whatever the case may be in that regard, Nathan was certainly God's kindness to David. You see, we see the Lord's mercy coming in a faithful and gracious rebuke. God is kind toward us by bringing us to see our sin and by calling us to repentance. That is the kindness of God. One of the most fearful things is to see someone who professes the name of Christ to continue in their sin relentlessly without the Lord seemingly exposing their hearts. That is fearful. And if you're here tonight, I don't know, if you're here tonight and you've hidden a sin, and you're continuing that sin for many, many years, and God has not intervened, sit and tremble before God tonight. It is a part, an aspect of God's covenant kindness toward us that in His mercy He shows us our sin, He exposes our sins to our sight, that He'd bring us to repentance. Because we know the Lord chastens those He loves. He chastens sometimes through hard providences, but other times through words of gracious rebuke. He rebukes us in our sin. And so Nathan comes as a gift from God. And please note some features regarding Nathan's coming. First of all, note Nathan's courage in the word. He comes and addresses the king. The king who at this point in time is not in a close relationship with the Lord. Now, you go to the king who's walking with God, and you bring God's word to such a king in such a time, well, your prospect of a hearing is much different than this would be now. You see, Nathan knows, verse number 7, thou art the man. Nathan knows the situation here. I believe the Lord has revealed to Nathan, or in some way, Nathan knows the context here. He knows the situation, and he's going to bring a word to the king, the mighty king with all authority behind him, And he's going to tell the king, you're a filthy sinner. That's courage. Where does such courage come from? Ultimately, a knowledge of the words are the words that come from the Lord. That's where every faithful minister, every faithful evangelist gets their courage. Oh yes, different personalities. There are some people who would, you know, fight with their own shadow, and they seem to have this natural courage that they would never fear anything. But most of us aren't like that. And we find ourselves falling back into our fear when it comes to confronting people of all of their sins. But the courage comes when we realize that the words of rebuke and conviction, they come from God Himself. And so I ask you, please pray for faithful ministers and faithful friends who will come to you with a word from God, and they will do so without fear. It's for grace. Nathan's courage in the word. Note secondly then, Nathan's clarity in the word. His clarity in the word. He brings this pointed story. It's often referred to as a parable. may not be a parable. Maybe an actual story. There's no account here as a parable. And certainly, David's not told a parable. David's given no warning. You think his suspicions would arise if Nathan comes and says, let me tell you a wee story. 
parable. No, he, he confronts David with this, this really profoundly tragic story of two men, a rich man and a poor man. Again, we've, we've read the story. You know the situation. The poor man had one little ewe lamb. It's, it's a story that almost brings tears to your eyes when you think about this lamb treated as a daughter in the home. Some of you have dogs and cats like that. You know they're, they're family pets and they're treated with such care. Well, this family pet becomes a roasted piece of meat to serve to a wayfaring traveling man. Think of how this poor man felt about this precious you taken. Because the word is used, he took, verse number four, but took the poor man's lamb. Again, that word took being used very deliberately in connection with David taking Bathsheba. And so the rich man who does not want to diminish his own flock. Verse 4, he doesn't want to spare, he doesn't want to take his own flock, but rather takes the poor man's lamb and dresses it for the man that was come to him. So, this is Nathan bringing clarity in the word. I think, you know I'm cautious with speculating, but I, I think to myself, I wonder, does Nathan... Does he take some time? The Lord has told him to go to David. And I wonder, does he take some time to think, how can I get David's attention here? What's the best way to cause him to see his own sin? And I think he comes to David and appeals to David as a king who understands the principles of justice and integrity. And so in verse number 5 it says, And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. There is no harm in being wise as serpents. To being careful in considering how to bring the word of God to a particular person in such a way that they would realize the error of their ways and see their sins. Oh, that's just religious manipulation. No, it's being wise as serpents, harmless as doves. It's this idea of bringing the Word of God to bear with clarity to the individual. That they're not confused and wondering what's happening here, but they understand, they understand the nature of their own sin. So when Nathan says to David, Thou art the man, David has nowhere to turn, but to understand within his own conscience, he recognizes that he sinned against God because that's your task as a minister, as an evangelist, as a faithful friend. It is to catch the conscience to cause people to recognize their sin for what it truly is against God. So Nathan brings clarity in the word. Thirdly, he brings about conviction through the word. The famous words of verse number seven, thou art the man. There is the need for the word to be applied directly. You see, there are quite a number of people and they are content to say, I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm a sinner in some general sense, but they're less keen to know their actual particular sin for what they're worth. They don't want to know exactly what their sins are. It's important that the word of God is applied directly. That we don't just simply confess our sins generally, but realize that we have in very particular ways sinned against God. And so he comes and he applies the word directly, and he applies the word thoroughly. Just consider the ways in which he exposes 
the exacerbations of David's sin. Uh, David's sins are bad enough, but when you get to verse number 7 and following, you see how great these sins are in light of God's favor. I anointed thee king, delivered thee out of the hand of Saul, gave thee a master's house. In other words, he, he inherited all that was Saul's. Gave you the house of Israel and Judah. He had their affection, their allegiance. And just to add to this, if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. That's when you get to verse number 9. As the word of God is applied thoroughly, the conviction comes, Wherefore, in light of all of God's grace, wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Somewhere, in your Christian consciousness, your child of God, you've got to keep grace at the very forefront of your mind. It is a protector against you falling into sin. It was used here by Nathan to bring judgment, but we must take time to consider what God has done in our lives. Remember that we're looking at the fall into sin of a believer. How awful is that sin in light of God's loving kindness? And so, dear child of God, spend time each and every day meditating upon the goodness and the kindness of God. And then ask yourself the question, wherefore can I ever despise the commandment of the Lord? In light of all that it has done for me, how can I sin against God and do that which is evil in His sight? It's one of the ways which a Christian will apply the grace of God. And again, if you're here tonight... And you know you're not right with God, though you profess the name of God, but you're not right with God. Think of all the Lord has done for you. How could you do this evil in God's sight? Nathan, fourthly, is committed to present all the word. See, Nathan does not hold back. He doesn't hold back the judgments of God to David for his sin. He mentions all that God has said to him. You see what it says there? Verse number 10. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord. And so you're going to see verse 10, 11, 12. You're going to see those verses. They're opened up in the future chapters. They will occupy much of our attention in the future studies. You see, David is not manipulated by Nathan. Nathan's no religious charlatan. Repent of your sins and all the consequence of your sins will go away. That's not true. And yet sometimes that is the way the gospel is preached to saint and sinner alike. They're backslider. The Christian man, the Christian woman that has fallen into some great sin. And they're told, well, you know, God is so gracious that if you repent of your sin, all the consequences of your sins, they'll all go away. That's not the case. That is not the case. For various reasons, we'll think of those reasons in a moment or two, but it is the reality sometimes that our sins bring about such consequences. Now here, again, please be careful. David is a particular case. He's the king of Israel, and his sin has brought occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, verse number 14. There are particular reasons for David to suffer the consequence of his sin as a demonstration of the power of God and the awfulness of sin. 
So there's a particular context here for David. But it is also true more generally that sin has ongoing consequences. And we should not seek to tell people that they should repent in order that those consequences all go away. It's not true. It's important that as we share the gospel, we remind people that sin is against God. He forgives, gladly forgives, but he does not promise to reverse the consequence of our rebellion. I don't know. I suppose there are many reasons why those consequences continue. Why do you continue to feel the consequence of your folly and your sin? Well, certainly it reminds you of God's grace, doesn't it? When you see the consequence of your sin and you see that continuing going forward, surely it is a continual reminder of the grace of God. You see your sin, but you also see God's grace and God's mercy and God's favor. And so for that reason, you can thank God for those ongoing consequences. Some of you carry scars from past life. And you wish those scars could suddenly miraculously disappear. But that is not the case. And those scars serve as constant reminders of the grace of God in your life. And at the same time, those consequences in your lives should warn others. And in your lives should warn yourself regarding any future careless sin. And see, God is not careless or unloving by permitting the consequence of David's sin to continue. It is another aspect of God's grace. But for our point right now, I'm simply showing that Nathan is committed to present all the word. And as such, he is God's gift to David, a faithful prophet. Did you have such a person in your life once? Was there somebody that came to you at some point in your life and drew alongside you and said, Thou art the man? Did it bring you to repentance? Well, if so, it'd be good to end today on your knees thanking God for the gift of a faithful messenger. Someone who brought the word and brought you to see your sin. And if you yet have not experienced that, may God yet have mercy upon your soul. You see, God's gift to David was in sending him a faithful prophet. And secondly, by moving David to repentance, by moving David to repentance, you see, verse number 13, and David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, before, before you consider this in more detail, think of some of the dates here. By this time, the child has been born. We are looking at nine months to a year after the initial sin, before Nathan comes and approaches David. And in that time, there is no repentance. I think of Joab. Joab, he, he knew the truth. Just think about this from Joab's perspective. I wonder what Joab thought in his heart. Joab, again, we've all manner of mixed testament regarding Joab's character. But if Joab was a consistently godly man, what would he have thought of David? Would he not have come to the conclusion in those months, six months, seven months, eight months, would he not have come to the conclusion that David is no different from Saul? He's just the same. Another man rebelling against the will of God, rebelling against the, the ways of God. He would have thought to himself, David has no part in God's kingdom. 
I just say that to encourage all of our hearts. You know, there are some when they fall far into sin and fall long into sin. And to all intents and purposes, it looks like they're totally apostate. But it may not be the case. God is long-suffering, patient, willing to bring people like David to repentance. But he does so in his own time. Because David is not like Saul. He is one under the grace and mercy of God. And he is one who we are told in Psalm 32 that when he kept silence, his bones waxed all through his roaring all the day long. And so it seems to be the case that even in the times prior to repentance, he was troubled with the guilt of his conscience. His moisture was turned into the drought of summer. There's something of the hardness that he knew. But in God's timing and in God's purpose, he sends Nathan to him. And in God's grace, he repents of his sin. Nathan, he said to Nathan, verse number 13, I have sinned against the Lord. That's only of God's grace. For him to respond in that fashion is another display of God's grace in his life. But we might expect more. It's so simple. I have sinned against the Lord, even shorter than the original. Very brief. Passing comment. The genuineness of repentance is not shown by the length of the prayer. Now, David's prayer is long. It's Psalm 51. But someone's repentance can be genuine, though it may not have all the tears that flow in somebody else's repentance, and it may not have the length of prayer that someone else may have. You see, we still have this in ourselves. We're a little bit like Catholic in our minds at times. We presume that true repentance must involve some form of penance. We've got to do something more and better in our repentance to, favor the, to have the favor of God. No, you simply come to the point, I have sinned against the Lord. And that reality strikes your heart. And so please turn across to the Psalm 51. I'm not going to explain this entire psalm, but I want to show you in this psalm that David is moved to genuine repentance. And you'll see in your bulletins there that I've printed for you the words of the Shorter Catechism, question number 87. I'm going to take what's already been prepared. Uh, Somebody also has already done the work on telling us what repentance looks like. And so what does it look like? Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. All of that's in Psalm 51. So let's see it. First of all, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin. Where do you see a true sense of his sin here? Verse number four, against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. A true sense of sin is seeing sin against the holy God. A God who is just when he speaks words of judgment against us. That's a true sense of sin. David does not blame shift. He doesn't excuse himself. He doesn't manipulate the account in such a way that it seems he's less guilty than he is. I have sinned against the Lord. Others, again, have sought to move the attention towards someone else, shifting the principle, shifting the focus away from their own guilt. You see, a true sense of a sin realizes 
that he sinned against the holy God, and what he has done, therefore it is evil, done this evil in thy sight. He understands, verse number 6, that God desires truth, not only externally, but inwardly. That's a reality of sin. That sin is not just what I do, it's who I am. God needs truth in the inward parts. He's come to a true sense of his sin. Repentance unto life, a saving grace for by a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. Verse 1, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. Oh, to have someone in deep conviction of sin without grasping mercy is a horrible thing to see. You go back and read the account of Luther. For those years where he knew nothing but conviction of sin, how can I stand in the presence of God and the misery he endured in those times? It was only when he came to knew the mercy of God that light shines in a dark place because conviction of sin is a dark place. But the light of God's mercy shines in and then we see. And then we run to Christ Jesus. The mercy of God in Christ Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. We'll come back to this. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. A sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin. Verse number 3, my sin is ever before me. You come to that point in your life where you feel just the profound sense of conviction. You cannot get your sin out of your mind. Therefore, you turn from that sin unto God. Again, verse number one, have mercy upon me, O God. You see, the repentant sinner recognizes that their only hope is found in the Lord whom they've offended. Oh, yes, we need to reconcile with people humanly. David's done great and vile things against Uriah and his family, against Bathsheba, against the armies of Israel, against the people of God. He has sinned in so many levels but he comes to realize that his only hope is in turning to God. And so he turns from his sin to God with full purpose off and endeavor after new obedience. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He wants to walk with God again. He wants to know the joy of his salvation again. He wants to teach transgressors their ways. He wants to be an instrument in God's hands. He wants to praise God with his lips. All of those things in those verses, verse 10 through 15, he's got a purpose after new Obedience. Repentance is a gift from God. God granted the Gentiles repentance unto life. And so repentance is always a gift from God. And even when the child of God comes and they're convicted of their sins and they realize that they must forsake their sins and they must confess their sins, that repentance is a gift from God. And dear child of God, the very day and hour you repented of your sin, you knew the grace of God that day. The kindness of God and the mercy of God. Psalm, or sorry, 2 Samuel 12. Do you see how it beats with the kindness of God? Well, thirdly, he gives David a promise. Keep your finger in Psalm 51, but note please. 2 Samuel 12, verse number 13. The Lord also hath put away thy sin. We are going to have to come back and think about the consequence of David's sin in detail. But for now, just simply end with this. The Lord also hath put away thy sin. What a promise. 
too easy. Too simple. Well, it's neither simple nor easy. It is the wonders of the grace of God and forgiveness. You think of all the terms that are used in the Old Testament for forgiveness of sins. God passing over sin. God not imputing sin, remembering not sin, blotting out sin, casting sin into the sea, washing away our sins. Even those things that are given to us, turn back to Psalm 51, and you'll see several references that are used to the the various ways in which sins are cleansed. Verse number 2, wash me, cleanse me. Verse 7, purge me, wash me. Verse number 9, hide thy face from my sins. Blot out all mine iniquities. You see all the various terms in which this is noted. Deliver me, verse number 14, from blood guiltiness, O God. All of these terms are used. And God has given David a promise, a promise that comes to each and every person who repents and believes the gospel. Your sins are put away. You shall not die. That is the great hope of the gospel. You see, the point of all of these various terms, and there are so many metaphorical terms used for God forgiving our sins, it's hard to encompass all that God does as He washes us, cleanses us, puts away our sins, forgives us, blots out our transgressions, all of these things. Three very simple things, and we're finished. He does so graciously. Forgiveness belongs with God. And when God forgives our sins, it is an act of God's sovereign grace. He does so secondly, justly. I said this matter of God putting away our sin was neither simple nor easy. You see, justice is involved here. Verse number 7, David makes mention of the hyssop. Purge me with hyssop. It would take the thoughtful child of God in the Old Testament back to the Passover. The hyssop used to apply the blood upon the doorposts. It would take the thoughtful child of God in the Old Testament back to the leprosy cleansing in Leviticus chapter 19, or those who were guilty having touched a dead body in Numbers chapter 19. The hyssop used in those times to bring cleansing. The hyssop, if you like, is the application of blood to the sinner. It points forward to Calvary. God's Son, Jesus, His blood cleanses us from all sins. And so we turned forward last time to Romans chapter 3, Because David is not forgiven without reference to the blood atonement of Christ Jesus. The hyssop points forward. But we know Romans chapter 3 and the verse number 25. God has set forth Christ to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. To declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God's Calvary. Upon Calvary, God says, I am righteous in forgiving David's sin. One of the sins was passed, remitted, forgiven, put away. But God on Calvary declares to you tonight and to all of us, shows us again the justice of God in forgiving sin. That God does not ignore sin. He forgives sin justly as the price is paid in full as Christ dies upon the cross. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He forgives David graciously, justly, and entirely. Why do I mention entirely? Because you might think that as David feels the consequence of his sin, 
that God has not actually really forgiven him. And I take you back to your scars for some of you. Some of you who feel those scars of past sins. And you may perhaps, you may harbor in your mind the idea that God has not entirely put away your sins. David right now is in glory. And the only reason he's in glory is because God entirely forgave all of his sins. One solitary unforgiven sin keeps the sinner out of heaven. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David understands the assurance that he was given, that he was entirely cleansed of all of his sins. And though the consequence will continue, we discussed some of the reasons for that, though those consequences are felt ongoing, he has no need to fear the wrath of God upon his sins. There is therefore now no condemnation. He is safe in Christ his greater son. This is the glories of the grace of God. David's sin is a grotesque event in human history. It's horrid in all of its views. And yet in the blackness of David's sin, we see the glorious brilliance of the gospel of grace, the mercy of God towards sinners. And you, you're no better than David. And if you've known mercy, you've known the same mercy that David knew. That mercy that will follow you all the days of your life until you dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's close in prayer. Eternal God and Father, we come again before thee, thanking, thanking you, O Lord, again for your kindness in our lives. You've shown us such abundant mercy. Oh Lord, our sins may not be so public or so easily seen as David's were. But, O oh Lord, our sins are grievous in thy sight. Against thee, the only, have we sinned. And so afresh, we thank you for the mercy that you've shown us in Christ Jesus and the mercy that we continue to enjoy. Even as those who walk in the light, we know, O oh God, that you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so we think of every person listening in to this service. You know every heart. For those who must hear the words, Thou art the man, thou art the woman, may they hear those words tonight. Draw them to thyself. And we pray, dear Father, for your grace. Again, some perhaps, and they have, they've never known, they've never known your mercy, the tender heartedness of God towards them in their sin. Oh, Lord, draw some dear sinner's repentance tonight. We thank you again for Calvary and for the blood that cleanses from all sin. We praise your name. Bless us. Help us this week to walk with thee. As we pray in Christ's name. Amen.